Predictable Podcasts. Predictable Podcasts. There's a million of them out there. Dabbling about the same old boring stuff. But trust me, my friend, this is not one of them. This is Diary of a Bald Man. He's bald, and he's completely off his damn rocker, and I love that about him. Safety, dinosaurs, relationships, the many uses of a can of Raid in the bedroom. Hold on. Did I uh, read that right? What the... What the f*** happened there? All right. <clears throat> Let's do this. Welcome to Diary of a Bald Man. Yeah. Now your host, the cue ball himself, Alan Wooford. Hey, you're listening to Alan Wooford on Diary of a Bald Man. So, welcome to the show. Today's recording date is February 19th, 2022, and here in Dandridge, Tennessee, it is absolutely beautiful. The sun is out. I just got back from seeing Josh and Lori Philpot over at Crater City, Inc. I was going to have some stuff done, but I was dropping some equipment off for him, and today was a great day. You know, we, we always talk about things that improve the quality of life, and I said in that last podcast about me going to Total Hair and Body and getting hormone, you know, pellets stuck in my right hip. And it's little things like that. People are like, well, you know, what are you doing getting hormones? Well, when you get older and, you know, your hormone levels change and you start to feel decrepit and old, if you don't do something about it, that's on you. You know, when you listen to things like this and you talk to people, People laugh and say, why would you go get hormone replacement therapy? You're not a chick. You didn't get gutted. You didn't have this done. And that's not the point. Quality of life is the point. You know, part of what the diary of a bald man is, is to tell you things that I've done in the back or in the past, excuse me, you know, and you reflect on your own and say, hey, what could I have done different? Not that we should have done different. There's sometimes we think about that, but then when we do that, are we denying ourselves the experiences that we got? Are we preventing ourselves from developing and growing? So don't ever hesitate. You know, just say, hey, I did stupid shit. Stupid shit did me. So in just a minute, we're going to get into the show. But, you know, a couple of administrative things I want to put out here. Thank you all for going to the mindandconstantmotion.com webpage and sending in your comments and notes. You know, this, this has been a huge change. Uh, with the Dragging Up series, again, we didn't really put out a lot of stuff where people were interacting. You know, we get our guests on, people would like things like this. But with people listening to the diary, uh, especially that last one, Get Out of Their Box, that it seemed to have a huge impact. We were looking at the analytics on iTunes uh, between that one and, you know, the Getting Before 55. And it's amazing the influence, the ages, the genders, and the reach that we have. You know, currently, uh, the most listeners that we have, oddly enough, is in Spokane, Washington. Second to that, Anchorage, Alaska. Third to that is in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, where Josh and Lori live. So we're getting, you know, a good diverse range. We're in Italy, Germany. Uh, I think there was a couple other places I wasn't familiar with the geography of it. You know, so we've got some international and local appeal. And what was funny is... 
you know, 90% of my friends and family are in Georgia and Tennessee in very specific regions, and none of them are listening. Oh my God. <laughs> but that's fine. Because they know me, they don't have to have the diary. They had to live the play-by-play. My wife does not listen to it. You know, she's fortunate enough to come home to me every day. Well, let's not say fortunate. Let's just say it's fortunate for me that she does. But, you know, it, it's amazing how we take these moments and we take these sound bites and you say, hey, listen to this, listen to that. And so when they do and they come on and they comment, you know, one of the comments that I got, and this there was five of them this week, that said, Alan, go back and do like you did from the beginning. You know, give us a year, give us a location. You know, the other stuff is okay, but we want to hear the diary side. And I did. I, I got away from that for a minute because I was trying to answer other emails that were coming in with other things of interest. And, you know, so what's coming up, we've got the two cups, or excuse me, two vets in a cup uh, that's coming out here towards March. We've also got the episode, you know, people ask me about becoming a consultant. We've, I've got that coming up. Uh, today's show, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about 1999, the rally in the valley where I was in Spokane, Washington, during the Kaiser aluminum strike over at the Trentwood facility. So it's of interest to many people and disinterest to many people, but we're all going to take a segment from it. And the reason I say that, think again, you know, you're listening, you're driving, you're, you're sitting there inking somebody. Cause Josh, I know right now you're probably drawing a half naked minotaur on somebody's thigh there in Kentucky while you're listening to me. And I know you're getting a little bit of a heat chubby, right? Cause you're like, Oh, that's Alan. That's the man right there. So in just a moment, we'll get into the show. But again, the communication that was coming in, Alan, hey, can you get back to the diary sequels? Can you give us more information on that? And that's coming up in just a moment. Hello, you're listening to Alan Wooford on Diary of a Bald Man. This episode is powered by Josh and Lori Philpot, the owners of Crater City Inc. in Middlesboro, Kentucky. Visit them on Facebook or CraterCityInc.com. While Alan can and does cause trauma to your mind, Josh and Lori can add art and beauty to your life and body through ink therapy and body piercing. Mm -hmm. Once the ringing between your ears has stopped and you've recovered from the bald man's rambling, go to mindandconstantmotion.com and submit your comments or suggestions. Now, sit back, shut up, and enjoy the show. All right, Keith, and I appreciate that. So, let's look at 1999. 1999, that was a crazy-ass year for a lot of people. You got to remember, in 1999, the big thing that people were losing their shit over was computers crashing on New Year's. Yeah, they, nobody knew what was going to happen once the clock struck in 20,000, or excuse me, 2,000. Do you remember that? Think about it. You know, everybody was selling all this stuff. Preppers were really going crazy over, you know, this, that, or the other item. You know, and they were worried about computers crashing, the banks crashing, the stock market crashing, because of clocks, of a simple code would the computers go over into 
the year 2000. So people were losing their shit over that. The other things that happened, President Clinton's impeachment trial began, I think it was around in January, if I remember correctly. The Family Guy, The Matrix, The Sopranos, those were all released and began in 1999. Eminem released Slim Shady, the LP. You guys remember that? But one of the coolest things was that Representative Nancy Mace was the first female to graduate from the Citadel. So a lot of great things happened in 1999. What was I doing? I was sitting on my ass in Spokane, Washington. So due to unfortunate events, uh, one of my mentors into the industry for labor disputes and, and high-risk security and high-risk labor operations, Milt, passed away. Uh, he was the original site commander. And if you think of a site commander, it, it's pretty much think of your highest manager on your job site. So Milt passed away. I was back in Georgia. Uh, I had things going on. I had left working down at Georgia Military College. Uh, I had worked, you know, down there for some time. And I was asked to come up and fill in for Milt. So with my background and everything, I got up there. Had a great, great group uh, that was working with us on the tactical security operations, the labor side. Um, you know, it, and I have to dedicate this show to two of those guys who were up there. So for those of us from the old IMAC uh, family, you know, this show is dedicated to Larry Gatewood and James Brooks. So for all of you who are not listening, Larry Gatewood was a phenomenal individual. He was one of my supervisors. And like me, he was retired law enforcement, but he retired prior to 1999. Uh, he had been in law enforcement, counter-narcotic operations, and some other stuff. Uh, but he passed away a few years back. And then James S. Brooks, you know, he was a Navy veteran. Uh, he got out. He was doing his thing. He, he was a Cuban mix. He was my little Desi Arnaz. Uh, spoke multiple languages, highly intelligent, very lively. And he got me connected with a group called The Offspring. I swear, every time we'd go on a surveillance operation and we were tracking people uh, doing threat prevention to our clients, he'd pop in The Offspring and he'd be singing. Then he'd sing in Russian. Then he'd sing in, you know, Cuban. And just a phenomenal guy. So Larry and James, God bless you both. We miss you. You had a huge impact on a lot of people's lives. So I met them while we were up in Spokane. So at the time, if you've never been to Spokane, it's a it's a beautiful and unique place, or it was the last time I was there in 1999. I enjoyed it. Uh, being from Montana, I love to be able to see the mountains. Uh, you know, in our operation, if you Google Kaiser Aluminum in Spokane or Kaiser Aluminum Trentwood, it was a massive facility. You know, they supplied Boeing with, you know, the aluminum for the aircrafts that they produce, as well as some other things. Um, but it was a massive facility. And then up at the Mead plant, that's where they actually smelted the aluminum. They bring it down in these massive urns on tractor trailer through the mountains into Trentwood. They had poured these kettles. They had formed the materials that was needed for aerospace industry and for other platforms. And it was an amazing program. So what was going on? This strike actually occurred for two years, and it, it was a long job. Uh, previous to that, you know, you, if you listen to the uh, Detroit one, 
where back in 95, I was up in Detroit. That was for the newspaper strike. And that, that lasted a pretty long time as well. But Kaiser had numerous facilities that were currently on strike. You know, they had Gramercy, Louisiana, uh, that they were concerned about, the Mead facility, Trentwood. And, you know, it it was a an interesting job. So here I am, and my first weekend, you know, things are just, it, it, it's havoc. Uh, Milt had passed away, the people that he brought in, the people he trained. And again, Uncle Milt was just, he was a phenomenal person. Uh, he had no law enforcement background. He had done various things in the trades, uh, but he understood unions because he had been a union guy. So he knew how to teach the guys, don't be disrespectful. Here's what you have to do. Here's how you communicate. Here's how you engage with them. And that, you know, that's something that's really big with me is communication, engaging, planning, preparing, getting things out. But, you know, it, it was kind of unique because if you think about some of the oddest jobs you've done, I hated, I, I shouldn't say hate, I really did not care for the lifestyle of tactical security operations and labor disputes. Um, it's necessary. I mean, you got to look back, you know, when the Pinkertons were doing it and all the things that used to happen. But if you've never seen a strike line, I've been on both sides. I was, I was a union man. I was with the IBEW up in Alaska when I was working as a Department of Defense contractor. And then I've been on the other side where we had to watch over and protect the people that were operating the plants during the labor dispute. Now, you know, there's all kinds of terms. We were called scabs. We were called everything. But what a lot of people don't understand that's never been around one of these, the people that go to work in there, they're not replacing anybody. They're keeping the plant running until negotiations are completed. And, you know, sometimes that, that didn't go out too well. You know, there was a tire strike. Uh, was it Firestone Goodyear? I, I can't remember which one. Uh, while those groups were out on labor dispute, they brought in temporary workers. And then, was it, uh, God, late, early 90s, maybe late 90s, tires started exploding. Uh, because they weren't set properly, they weren't vulcanized properly. There, there was a whole slew of issues involved with that. So that mentality comes back of unskilled labor. And that's true in some cases. You bring somebody in that's never done that job, they're training them on short order. But it's to keep the plant alive. Because once negotiations are over, you want everybody to go back to work. Your job as a professional labor, filling in somewhere else, you develop skills to help others. But that's not the way it's seen. You know, it, it's, a, it's a slippery slope when you have to cross the line and you have to be protected to keep a facility open so others can go back to work. You're a temporary, you know, and it's, it's tough. You're away from your families. You're living in hotels. And in 1999, that is what we did. You know, we were in a hotel uh, previously, they've been what's called locked in. They lived, they fed, they showered, they slept, everything inside the facility. And that's not something you want to do. You know, you have to get outside of that inmate mentality. And you have a high turnover rate. You have issues. And these are the kind of things you have to look at. You know, mental health, physical health, uh, all the environmental and health stuff. And sometimes it's a necessity due to distance, due to time, due to transportation. There's so many things that have to be considered. So, you know, when we're doing this kind of work and you're getting involved in it, 
Yeah, like I was saying previously, 1995, I was in Detroit. 1996, I was at the King Supers uh, strike in Denver, Colorado. And my actual job was as a bodyguard uh, for Peter Webb. And Peter Webb was the public relations person. And Peter really didn't need a bodyguard. Uh, basically, we were keeping an eye on his family, uh, his physical property and stuff. Because if you knew Peter Webb's background as a federal law enforcement officer, you'd be like, and he needs you, why? So there's different reasons. You know, you, you look at different things. So where I was saying I didn't care for this, you know, it, it's a great thing to try, you know, especially prior military. We had a lot of prior military. We had Vietnam vets when I was with Falcon Global. And we were doing high-risk jobs like this. You know, good 40, 50% of them were former special forces, army rangers. Uh, when I was with TWI and we were out at Lawrence Livermore, you know, we had two medics that were prior Navy SEALs. So you get a lot of that camaraderie. And it's other vets that didn't know what they do you know, when they got out. Now you have these private militaries, uh, corporations, PMCs. You have all these things where they supported operations in Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran. You know, and that, that's a good thing. You take the years of training, years of tuning. And that's what I was doing. I was prior military. I had some experience in law enforcement. I had not developed years yet. Um, you know, after the Olympics, I really didn't want to get too involved with that. Um, but, you know, I'd been injured in the military. I was trying to find my way, trying to find out Hey, where am I supposed to be at? Where am I supposed to go now? So in 1999, with these years of experience from 95, four years of experience on going to labor disputes, working as one of the team medics, you know, um, that public safety side, helping out. In 1999, while I was in Spokane, Washington, during the day, I was an office man. You know, I'd be there in case something happened on the line between the picketers and my officers. I was making you know, uh, couriers, uh, check-in because we'd be moving materials, samples to labs, going to the Mead facility. We may be doing surveillance on certain vehicles that we had to protect because certain orders had to, we wanted to make sure nobody tampered with it, tampered with the trucks. Um, I'll, I'll try and get the picture on the website where we went up to one where Pooh Hicks, Pooh, if you're listening, you'll probably remember this. As the driver was going through, he had some heavy sheet metal and they cut his straps and it cut through the cab of his truck almost killed him you know when you think about the piston coal strikes you think about the caterpillar strikes you think about some people get killed on these things there's a lot of mood there's a lot of mentality uh, there's a lot of aggravation a lot of anger so in 1999 where i was a site commander trying to fill in on boots that were way bigger than my feet were you know, with a hell of a lot more experience in the industry. Um, you know, I was leading a group on one of the largest plants you've ever seen. Um, and it was good. It was a learning curve because I was 31 at the time. I mean, I was a young buck. But the higher-ups had the confidence because of where I had my skill sets as a veteran, uh, being, you know, in law enforcement for a short period of time, being out on the strike jobs, having the training with the NLRB, having that knowledge, and it was a great fit. And let me tell you, Spokane put it all to the test. Now, where this gets hinky, um, some of the things I, I was not prepared for, 
as part of the surveillance and protection of the Kaiser people and the negotiators and the Union, we would cross over into Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So if you're looking at Washington and you go east, you know, Spokane was not that far. Um, I can't remember if it was an hour drive, something like that. But we'd go into Coeur d'Alene. And while we were doing surveillance to make sure no one tampered with negotiations, nobody was out taking surveillance photos. We were basically, that's what we were doing, was counterintelligence and protection of assets. Uh, myself and another person would walk with the TSCM, Technical Surveillance Countermeasures guys, and we would sweep rooms. We'd sweep the rooms that they were meeting in. We'd sweep the rooms that they took breaks in to make sure that one side or the other was not planting microphones and what was popular back then was to take a baby monitor and they would strip the outside of the case, put it inside of a book, put it inside of a bag, set it in the room, you know, next to the snack table because nobody touched it. It would have some decoration and listen to the whole thing. You know, we, we saw some interesting things out there and our job was to protect everything that was going on. So we're getting into this and this probably around November or so. We're doing a counter-surveillance operation in Coeur d'Alene, and we start seeing these trucks. And so one of the guys with us starts documenting the license plate, the make, the model, the number, and, you know, we, we check them against the list that we have of uh, known people from the strike line, uh, rental car agencies. I can't tell you how many rental car agencies we went around the area and asked them for a list of vehicles, just the plates. So... If somebody went to rent a vehicle and do surveillance and we caught that plate, we'd know, one, it was a rental, and then we could go work with the law enforcement authorities we were working with at the time and say, hey, can you find out who rented this? They're following, they're tracking our vehicles. We didn't have the GPS. We didn't have the little microwave transmitters that, you know, we could put on certain vehicles that we knew to be high risk or high threat. And so we did the best we could. What made this month particularly odd, we finally start getting information and some state officers show up and say, stop. You're being followed by an organization, um, we're, we're not going to say it in the podcast, that was highly involved in the area of Coeur d'Alene back in the 90s, that was a white supremacist organization that thought all of our guys were surveilling them. They weren't doing anything. We weren't following them. We were going to our meeting places, our alternate places, our rally points, our emergency response areas. But where they saw all these military-looking guys, in their mindset, they weren't thinking about the air base that was in Spokane. They were thinking about law enforcement. And they thought, okay, they're you know coming in, they're doing surveillance. We weren't. I mean, if you followed us, we had erratic patterns. I'm not going to tell you the kind of patterns we took. But we made so many turns, we'd break up at so many times, we would distance ourselves, we had pre-positioned vehicles, we'd switch out. You know, our job was surveillance, not being surveilled. Um, and that's, that's where your experience came in. So here we were probably three weeks after that last negotiation. And we're at state line. So imagine, like I said, you're coming east out of Spokane and you know, right, right between Spokane and Idaho, they have a place called Stateline. So you had Stateline Showgirls, which was a strip club. Uh, and you had, that's where everybody went for cigarettes because they were cheaper than anywhere else. We'd get gas, we'd get stuff. So one day, 
we're waiting on a team to come back out of Coeur d'Alene. They went to go move equipment. They went to go seal the rooms. You know, they, there's a whole process we do after we clean an area. And while we're sitting in there, that same group that thought we were law enforcement found out otherwise because their, their intelligence was really damn good. Uh, they came into the strip club and sat two tables away from us and just started talking with some of the guys around us. And it, it was the strangest thing because they, they were calling us by name because they knew our names. We had some of theirs we had because where we took photos of thinking we were doing counter surveillance. Uh, it was non-threatening. And then a half hour after that, the negotiating team, not all of them, but some of the members from the team, they came into the strip club. So here we have the surveillance counter surveillance groups. Then you have members of the negotiating team. And then you have members of the Aryan Nation all sitting watching titties together. There is a universal bond around the female form. It doesn't matter what you do, where you're from, what your job is. Titties and booties, hey, that brings everybody together. So when you're thinking about having a stressful day, thinking about having your the people you're protecting, the people you're protecting them from, the people that you're surveilling, the people that are surveilling you all meet together. It's amazing. <laughs> and it was probably one of the most unique situations. I've been to other strikes where, because of being part of the protection of the negotiating team or the counter-surveillance or the TSCM, you know, a guy that was two days ago screaming, calling me a scab motherfucker, I'm going to cut you, I'm going to kick your ass outside your hotel. And then you meet at the conference center and say, hey, Alan, how's it going? Hey, can you talk to your guys about this? One of my guys took that as being disrespectful, stuff like that. We had a good reputation after they saw us for a while because we weren't we weren't videoing. We monitored the line. If something happened, and it, it happened quite a few times, you'd have picketers out there blocking vehicle. You know, they'd separate after a while, but somebody get nervous and clip somebody in the hip, run over their toe. And the first person my team would call was me because I was the team medic. You know, these are the kind of things that people don't see. You see a lot of negativity in the uh, headlines when these occur. But the same thing when I was at King Supers and we were in Denver. The union was out there, King Supers. We was guarding one of the bakeries downtown. And, you know, because nobody wanted anybody tampering with food sources, stopping trucks going out to certain areas. Because you got to remember, there's a lot of military organizations and campuses and facilities out there. And one of my guys uh, that was on my shift prior to me going in uh, doing executive protection for Mr. Webb started to get frostbite. Um, I was off-site doing paperwork because of a vehicle accident that had occurred. And the union guys, we, we didn't have hot hands back then. But what they had done is they took oven mitts and they put them inside of aluminum foil and held it over a little bonfire that they had going in a 55-gallon can. But what was neat about this, it was a trick that they used back then inside some of the freezer units. And when the, one of their guys would have a problem, they had these like gel packs, kind of similar to, you know, what you put in the microwave. Uh, but they would use them for cushioning. But the gel would get warm. And they saved my guy's hands. They stood there and gave him coffee. When I came back, our guys were all standing on the line. They were huddled together because our guys, you know, they would, they would get to the vehicle. They would warm up. But the people that we were, we were monitoring and helping to protect, 
They were protecting us. Because it it gets cold. If you've never been to Denver, you know, after midnight, one o'clock, it's a high plains desert. It fucking gets cold up there. And here they were taking care of my guys. So with permission from my boss at the time and permission from King Supers and the negotiating thing, we had a pizza party on the strike line about a week before the line broke down. So they had set up tables at the fence and we brought the pizzas and beverages and set them on the tables. We pushed some over to their side of the line. Once he was outside the gate, that was it. They had a guy, they watched where we picked it up. They followed us, you know, and we invited them to because we wanted to make sure, yeah, we weren't going to get them anchovies or something that was going to fuck somebody up that had allergies to. So, you know, 1999, different places, same thing. You know, there are so many things out there in life we don't know about. And then you hear about these things like the strikers protecting my guys, who, who they'll spit at, yell at, they'll throw jack rocks on them. We've had deer piss thrown on us. They don't hate us because we're not inside work and we're just protecting the property and letting the scabs online. Um, but they'd see our guys were out there with them. If they were walking 12 hours, my guys were walking 12 hours. We'd rotate. I mean, Big Tony, who is a Samoan, you know, he'd sit down next to the fence. He had a big tarp up there. And they had a Samoan. And they would sit there on the side. And if their guys had a problem, they'd tell Big Tony. Big Tony tell me or one of the other leads and say, hey, so-and-so's doing this. Can you tell him not to do it? You know, and we would talk to it. And they would see that. And we were responsive because we were on that line together. It doesn't have to be a line. If you think about your workplace and where you're going through, you get somebody tense coming in, all they see you is a wall. They see you as being preventative in them getting in and engaging and doing the things they want. But then once they see you for a while and you talk to them and you're respectful and you see what's going on, then they see, okay, I'm not the only one. You may have just gave them 15 minutes of your day, but it's impactful. I went from places that were highly volatile. We were doing counter surveillance. We had people that you do not want to fuck with surveilling us because they thought we were something different. And when they saw we were protective, that we were keeping the community, that we were engaged in safe by adding eyes and responding in an appropriate fashion, not photographing people unnecessarily, but keeping the community clear, while they may not have liked us, we had mutual respect. You don't fuck with us. We don't fuck with you. We're here to protect this. In life, think about your past. What is something that you could teach somebody about today that they would say, oh, I would never do that. Never say never. Because the reason people say they're not going to do, not going to try, is because they haven't. You can't live off of fear. You're not going to. You will not live from fear. And like this, why I disliked the job, because I knew I was supposed to be doing something different. I didn't know what it was. I traveled, so traveling was not an issue. I mean, I've slept on short notice uh, or got went days without sleep. There, That was numerous times. But I was young, I was stupid, and I loved the people I was working with. Your community, your environment, that makes or breaks, whether it's a job at home, whatever. If it's not good, get the fuck out. Don't waste your in their time. Take a moment, reappraise, 
and just say, was I being a sensitive individual at the time? Or is there really something fucked up that we need to work out? You know, there's no reason for people being miserable. Work, home, you know, wherever you're at. Take the time, reassess, re-engage. This is Alan Wolford telling you to plan, prepare, communicate, and engage. And thank you for listening to the show. If you have any questions, comments, you want to hear something different, go to mindandconstantmotion.com, click on Contact Alan, tell me what you got, tell me what you need. And I thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Diary of a Bald Man. How do you feel? A little dizzy? Maybe a little nauseous? That was one hell of a ride, I know. It's our passion to make you feel as uncomfortable as possible. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We know we had a blast. Make sure to like, rate, and review the show. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, Google Alan the Safety Guy. You'll find all the socials there. Connect with us, or else. See you next time on Diary of a Bald Man.